Uh, we're studying the book of John, right? We're continuing the story. Um, and, and we're kind of going, if you've been studying along with us, you know that we're going from chapter 119 to like chapter 336. Six weeks to do John is not a lot. So um, it's a big portion of scripture. We won't be reading it all. But there's this, there's this quote, there's this text where everybody knows it. And you would think that it would be kind of the apex of the sermon. And that's why I'm preaching up to it. And that text is a text that you know really well, right? It's John 316. We can I'll say it together if you want. You don't have to. Uh, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you're like me, you learned it in the King James Version, right? Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, only time I've ever used that word, believeth in him shall have everlasting life. Shall, gotta say Shall. So this is what we learn, and this is what we learn when we're young, and it's a beautiful text. I'm not diminishing it in any way. It's gorgeous. It's wonderful. It's incomplete. It's not really a complete thought, unfortunately. And unfortunately, this is what we learn about God, and it's great. It's great because it talks about Jesus, right, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There's that perish word in there. It makes us a little nervous. Um, it's an incomplete thought that we really need to complete. And I'm doing this at the beginning of the sermon because there's a lot to go through today, but I want to make this point. It's incomplete without 317 because 317 shows us the attitude and the tone and the character of God. This we know God loves his son and loves us. That's wonderful. But the complete thought ends with 317. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world. Yeah. And had I known this, had I learned this part of the text when I was in third grade, by the time I was in ninth grade and I wasn't sure God was really all that loving and judgment seemed a lot more scary than I thought it was before, perhaps, perhaps I wouldn't have been so freaked out because I knew this about God, that his primary purpose was not to judge but to save. Had I known that, it's really possible that I wouldn't have had the anxiety that I ended up having. And listen, I got to hand it to my Bible teachers and my youth pastors. They were all great and wonderful people. But teach me 317 along with 316 so I can know what God's main purpose is. Because I grew up with the same pictures of God that you did, this narrow path, God standing on one side, people falling off on either other side. Almost like God standing there waiting to see like, well, let's see who's going to make it. That's not the God that's spoken to in Scripture. The God that's spoken of in Scripture is a God that flings the gates of heaven wide open and says, come on, come on, let me see how many of you I can get in. He's not a, he's not a goalie trying to keep you out. It's the exact opposite. He is the invitation to bring you in. And this is what that says. And this is the declaration we needed to hear at the beginning of our lives of faith, not halfway through. But... I want you to hear it now. And if you've got kids and you're studying scripture and you're memorizing scripture, by the way, do you remember that the motivation to memorize scripture was that they were going to take away all the Bibles? Did any of you grow up with that? I'm old, so like they're going to take your Bibles away. And so if you don't know all of scripture, I'm like, that's a big book. Like I'm going to, I'm going to memorize some highlights, maybe like some, some highlight reels, but I don't know if I'm going to get the whole thing. And then then came the digital age. And I'm like, mm, how are you going to take it away now? <laughs> like, they can get it anywhere. We can get it anywhere. Somebody's got a VPN to get us a Bible somewhere. So I, maybe that's not the motivation anymore. But um, don't teach 316 without 317. 
And if you've got kids, don't teach them 316 without 317. And remind them that God is for you, not against you, because that is the good news. And, and some of you, I get it, people who, people who lean into judgment a little bit kind of like people to get what's coming to them a little bit. And you don't have to admit that that's you, but you know, you know your hearts. Um, if you're worried that I don't believe that there are eternal consequences, then you've never listened to me preach. Because clearly, I'm worried about the eternal consequences of people's lives. That's why I speak so strongly about sharing the gospel at every opportunity we can. Because I believe that a life of abundance in Jesus is ultimately more better. And I don't want anyone to miss that, not on this life and not in the life to come. So yeah, there is judgment. But God's positioning is not towards judgment. It's towards salvation. Understand that. Got it? Okay, so there's declarations all over these next texts, right? This is one, this was a big declaration for God so loved the world. There's all these declarations. And every time I think of declarations, I'm just gonna admit to you, like my family, my family watches The Office like it's a warm security blanket. I don't know what you watched during COVID that made you just like, it'll be okay for the next 22 minutes. But, but for us, it was The Office. And there's this one episode in The Office that happened to be on uh, while we were cooking dinner the other night. And um, it's, the, it's the I Declare Bankruptcy episode where he finds out he's like in massive, massive debt. And he just walks in and he goes, I declare bankruptcy. And Oscar's like, you know, that doesn't mean anything. Like you have to like do something. There's all these declarations, and this next section is really about the declarations that are made. John is making declarations. Jesus is making declarations. God is making declarations all about who Jesus really is. And so we're going to delve into those today by studying like three or four stories as we jump into this. Right? We're going to start right from John 1.19. Like I said, I won't read everything, but we're going to start right from John 1.19 as we begin to understand the declarations that he's making about Jesus. This was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders sent priests to the temple, priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? So they asked, like, this is not unreasonable. They asked, who is John? Because he's getting some traction, right? People are kind of interested in him. And he's not the first, this is not the first time somebody's kind of come out of the desert, a little bit odd, a little bit weird. It's not the first time someone's come out of the desert and claimed to be something, made a declaration about who he was. And so they simply asked, hey, who are you? And he comes right out and declares, listen, I am not the Messiah. This is declaration number one. He wants to, just right now, I am not the Messiah. He was clear, so was the author of the book of John. Right, let's not confuse John with the Messiah. He wanted to make sure. Now, it's easy for us not to confuse John with the Messiah. Not so easy for them. We've had 2,000 years of understanding this is the guy who's paving the way for the guy who's coming. But then, he was just another guy coming out of the desert. And John fit the profile of a Messiah, just a little bit odd, right? Odd enough. We like people who are kind of odd in society, just a little bit strange. John was odd because he dressed a little weird, he said weird things, he ate weird things. Locusts and honey, right? That used to confuse me so much. I was like, man, you could find an apple somewhere. You don't have to eat locusts and honey. 
super confusing to me. But John was an odd guy, and we kind of love odd people, right, in society. We're kind of like, we, we want our musicians to be just a little odd, not too odd, not like feloniously odd. We, we're concerned about that. But like, we're, we all like to watch a, a bit of a, an extravagant personality. We had, we had this guy, he's a musician, he's amazing, probably one of the few musical geniuses I've ever met in my life. He was just he was just wired differently. Music was the language that he spoke. When it came to like the rest of his life, it was a little weird. So he showed up one time and like half of his hair was cut, strangely. And I was like, hey man, what's going on? He's like, well, I've decided I'm gonna do things that take as long as other things take. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, so I started a pot of tea and I started cutting my hair. And when the tea was done, I was done cutting my hair. I was like, but you're not done cutting your hair. And he's like, I think it's fine. And I was like, you would. Um, still, to this day, a musical genius. I've never seen somebody who can write and direct and compose music like this guy. He was odd, a little too odd. John was odd, but he was odd enough that they were interested and that people were listening, right? So anyway, the, these guys push him a little bit more and they're like, well, then who are you, right? If you're not the Messiah, got it. Who are you? Uh, are you Elijah? By the way, that's a big like a big connection, right? Because the only thing better than a prophet, than a rabbi was a prophet. So they said, hey, are you a prophet? Are you, are you Elijah? The biggest prophet, arguably. You a prophet? No, he says. Then they say, are you the prophet we're expecting? So like maybe an unnamed prophet. And by the way, they wouldn't have necessarily thought a Messiah was going to be God. They would have thought a Messiah was going to be like a prophet. Um, that's, again, the nomenclature that they would have given, the, la the label that they would have given him. And so they said, are you the prophet? And he's like, no. So now they're frustrated. And they say, well, who are you? And then they did something that's not great leadership, if you ask me. They basically blame their bosses. They're like, have you ever worked for somebody like that? Who's like, hey, it's not my fault. They're just asking me. They're telling me I got to do this. I'm sorry. That's what these guys are doing. They're like, hey, man, we, we got to go back and tell them something. Like, we gotta, we're just trying to get to lunch. So, like, can you, like, we need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself, right? So John replies, in the words of the prophet Isaiah. I'm the voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. Now, I want you to understand something here. This is an incredibly powerful declaration that he's using scripture to do because he does not say who he is. What he declares in this phrase is that Jesus is coming, that the Messiah is coming. John was saying less about who he was and more about who Jesus was. He was declaring the coming of the Messiah, not declaring himself. And this is big. And by the way, this is kind of a continuing model for most of us as we speak about God. Because every time we declare Jesus, truthfully, every time we declare the incarnation of Jesus, it is very possible that the person that you're speaking to or the person that is around in your influence is experiencing Jesus for the first time. That's the first coming of Jesus in their lives. Do you realize that? It's not 2,000 years ago. It's the day that you said his name. And so our job is to declare who Jesus is and that Jesus has come and is coming again. So the Pharisees, you know, they, then, then the Pharisees that had been sent, they asked him, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what gives you the right to baptize? Right? What, what makes you think you can do it? Because these are institutional people and institutional people are interested in permission. Who, who's going to let you do that? Who said you could do that? Have you ever, 
Have you ever, so in the, in the church world, there's denominational pastors, like I'm a denominational pastor, and then there's non-denominational pastors. Non-denominational, I don't know where that, what happened there? Non-denominational pastors have a very different idea of permission than us denominational pastors do. So I was talking to a friend of mine, he planted a church in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and he was, he was like, oh, I hear you're gonna plant some churches. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, great, where are you gonna do it? And I was like, well, I think we can do it here. We gotta talk to the conference. And he's like, I don't know what that is. And I was like, well, it's this thing, and there's a hierarchy, and there's this, and there's that. And, and then there's people above them, and then people above them, and then people above them, and then Jesus. And, um, <laughs> and he's like, oh, like the Pope? And I was like, no, not like the Pope. I mean, no funny hats, but um, I'm trying to explain it. And he's like, didn't the the Holy Spirit tell you to plant the church? (laughs) Yes. And he's like, then why do you need permission from anybody else? They signed the checks. I mean, not exactly. <laughs> Permission is about institutions. It comes from institutions, not movements, right? I will say this, though. Before you think, like, I hate institutions and I don't want to be a denominational pastor, like, when, when institutions get involved in movements, amazing things can happen, you know? So it really, takes, it really takes a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit to get institutions to move because they're built like institutions. They don't really go anywhere. Um, but the Holy Spirit can put wheels on them sometimes. And when that happens, you have the structure of an institution, which is beautiful. Um, and then, then you have the, the movement of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're trying to do. Work, with, work within this institution, recognizing the power and the movement of the Holy Spirit. That's important for us. Anyway, um, so John answers them this way. He goes, well, I, I baptize with water. Um, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I always love that phrase because it wasn't like, I'm not worthy to be his slave and tie his sandals. That would have been hard. Untying is easier. And he's like, oh, I can't even do that. That's a pretty clear declaration. He's saying, listen, Jesus is here. So before he was like, the guy is coming, and now he's saying, oh, but he's in the crowd. He's actually here. This is a huge declaration, not about John, about Jesus, right? It jumps us to the next story, which happens right afterwards, John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I think we read this and we go by this text really quick, but this declaration, this declaration right here, was one of the biggest declarations that John made. He said, behold, or look in this translation, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, let me tell you why this was such a big deal. It's the the nomenclature, the language, the label of Lamb of God. It harkens back to this idea of sacrifice, right? The idea of their sacrificial system, their whole system of soteriology, their whole system of salvation, system of of repentance and forgiveness, all centered around the idea of a sacrificial lamb, the day of atonement centered around that idea. And so they, John's saying, behold, the Lamb of God, he's saying the sacrificial lamb that's not even yours, it comes from God. 
God. It was, this system was paramount to their religion, obviously, to their economy, which we'll find out later, and even to their understanding of the Sabbath and worship. And to be that Jesus was, was all of those things was a massive declaration. So when he says, look, the Lamb of God, that declaration is huge. He is the one I was talking about, he continues. A man is coming after me who is far greater than me for he existed before me. By the way, this is the second time we come into this text and we've heard this. We heard this last week as well. The reason why is because repeating is a good literary tool for us to understand. It's also a good way for people to to gain um, a a foothold into your thoughts and your heart. And so he recognizes again. Then he says, listen, I, I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I've been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And then he goes on to speak of what happens. The, the rest of the text, I'm not going to read it, but the rest of the text you should know quite well because then Jesus, Jesus is coming out of the crowd and he goes, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the one I was telling you about, right? And Jesus comes up and he baptizes Jesus. And then we see a really incredibly powerful thing happen. He baptizes, he brings him out of the water, and then we see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and we hear the voice of God. Do you know that this is the first time the Trinity shows up all together in Scripture? God the Father speaking, Holy Spirit descending like a dove, Jesus in the water. And God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's beautiful. The declaration God made about Jesus, calling him his son and saying, I'm really glad for him. I'm really happy with what's going on. The declaration that John has been making about who Jesus is and the fact that Jesus is here. We're going to see some more declarations that Jesus made in a second, but this is a good time to stop and ask this question. What do you declare about your belief in Jesus? Whether it's you saying something like, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What is your declaration of faith about Jesus? We don't always make them out loud too, right? The way you live your life it's a declaration about what you believe and who you believe Jesus to be and, and, and how the world is going to experience God and Jesus through you, how they're going to experience the community of God and the kingdom of God through you. Whether you say it or whether you live it, you are always making a declaration about your belief. Now, we see the first miracle showing up. We're moving to chapter two, but we see the first miracle that, and and John calls them signs, not miracles. But now we see Jesus declaring things both in word and deed over the next few stories. In this story, we understand that, let me give you the background. Um, The background is this, Jesus is at a wedding with his friends and with his family, particularly his mom, right? If you know anything about first century Jewish weddings, they were a party and they lasted for a while. Right, so we may be on the second day, third day, who knows what time it is, but they run out of wine. Somehow mom finds out, Mary finds out. And she says to Jesus, they ran out of wine. And he says, woman, what is that to me? Now, I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. That's not gonna fly. And so Mary did what any mother would do if her son responded to her like that. She turned to the, the, she turned to the servants and she said, do whatever he says. And Jesus is like, my time has not yet come. And she ignores him, right? So he makes this little declaration about like, it's not my time to do miracles. And Mary's like, yeah, 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 that's fine. Do whatever he says. So we know as the story goes, what happens? Um, he tells the servants to go down, fill, fill the amphoras up with, wine, with water. They fill them up with water, it becomes wine. And this is where we pick up the story. 
When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. And he's like, listen, a host always serves the best wine first. Then when everyone's drunk, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. We learned a couple things here. First of all, that, that deed was incredibly gracious because being a host in that culture was a big deal. And to, to run out of wine, to run out of resources for your community, that wouldn't have been good. So Jesus is making this guy look good. But Jesus is also providing more than was being asked for because nobody asked for the best wine. They just asked for wine. Right? And at this point in the party, probably could have gotten by, you know, with, with the lesser of the, the vintages, as they say. But when God provides for his people, he doesn't provide for his people poorly. He provides for his people in abundance. And so he gives the best wine. Right? And we, we recognize that. So that's a deed in which he reveals who he is. And in fact, John says it. The miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. They might not have been sure, but you see, revealing his glory was a declaration of his divinity. By doing the sign, as John calls it, this miracle, Jesus declared his divinity in word and deed. So how do you declare the divinity of Jesus in word and deed? And the next story shows us a powerful deed with powerful words. You're going to recognize this story. We jumped to 2.13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple, in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Now, I want to be clear about this. What was happening at the time was not, you know, giving away coffee and if your heart so desires, you tip our baristas or having a little merchant table with some t-shirts and like if you want to grab one, you can, you can pay later if you want or whatever. That's not what's going on. What's going on is people would come to the temple with their sacrificial animal and they would have to get it cleared by a priest. A priest would clear it or not and by and large would not would say, well, we can't really, that's not without blemish. We can't really do that. We'll take it. We'll give you a little money for it. Um, and then you can go and buy one that's already been cleared by us. It's a closed economic system. But it's not just a closed economic system. It's a closed salvation system because you don't get to do your sacrifice unless you have what you buy from them. Let me be clear. Let's say you went and got a t-shirt today. And, and you decided not to pay for it. That will not keep you from the kingdom of heaven. Don't steal all our t-shirts. <laughs> but those t-shirts, that coffee, nothing to do with your salvation. If you don't get a crosswalk t-shirt, you're still saved. You won't look as good, but you'll be safe. <laughs> all right? I, I just want you to understand there are two different things because we've had people come in here before and be like, you, you're making the temple. And no, we're not. That's not the same thing. And if you need a T-shirt because you don't have a T-shirt and you can't pay for it, take a T-shirt. Don't take nine. Take a T-shirt and get you through the day if you need to. Not the same thing. I really want you to understand that because there has been some confusion with some people. This system was a problem because this system was keeping people away from God. 
And Jesus wasn't having it. So Jesus makes a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove the sheep and the cattle. There's a lot going on in that lobby, right? He drove the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over the tables. This is a declaration indeed, for sure. Going over to the people who sold doves. And I don't know why we're, we're like pointing out the dove sellers, but for some reason, Jesus had an issue with them. He goes over them and he says, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Yeah. But here's the thing. We have a tendency to think it was the commerce that was happening why Jesus was so upset. What he was upset by is that they weren't allowing people to get to Jesus. The declaration was not so much the kicking over the tables. The real declaration that Jesus made here was when he said, this is my father's house. Right? He said, this is my father's house. He is declaring that his father is none other than the God of the universe. The one that you go to the temple to worship, that's my dad. That's a declaration. It's not just that you can't do commerce on Sabbath. I mean, that may have been a thought that he had. The declaration that he made was that this is my father's house. That moves us to chapter three. It's a story, again, that we all know. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark, one evening, he came to speak to Jesus. Now, we're going to stop right there because I don't know if you remember the prologue where it says he came to give life and light. That's when we change the metaphor from life and unlife, if you will, to light and darkness. Where does the story happen? In the dark. We're talking about a society where, you know, there weren't like street lamps and all that sort of thing. The sun went down, you went to bed. What else are you going to do? Right? You may read by a candle a little bit, but you probably don't read. So you may have a candle there and you sit staring at each other and stop it. I don't know what happens if you don't have TV. Um, I'm just kidding. There wasn't a lot going on at night. So this guy coming at night, there was a purpose for it. There was a reason for it. He came at night because he didn't want to be seen. He came as an emissary from the Pharisees to figure out who this guy was all about. So after dark one evening, which gives us the hint that something is wrong. It's not nefarious. I don't think that would be the word we would use. It's not nefarious. It's not that dark. It's, it's just not right. Rabbi, he says. So he gives him a bit of, you know, he gives him a bit of respect. We all know God has sent you to teach us your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So he's giving him, you know, he's, he's, he's giving it up for Jesus. He's like, listen, you're, you're doing some things. We want to know, are you one of us? Are you one of us? That's really the question, right? Because he's coming from the ruling sect at the time. You one of our, you one of us? It, feel, it feels like a Godfather moment. He's a friend of ours. That's the question Nicodemus is asking. Are you a friend of ours or not? And I love the way Jesus responds because it is nonsensical. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, What? That's not, I did not, I didn't ask, I, that's not a question, I didn't ask you that question. I don't even know what those words mean. By the way, we are becoming comfortable with this language because this is the second time we are encountering this language in the book of John. So now we are beginning to know what it means to be born again. But Nicodemus, this is the first time he's hearing it. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was an expert in the law, chances are. Chances are, this is not something he understood. So he simply asked, what do you mean? 
And very literally, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? This is an appropriate question. What in the world does this mean? And by the way, people always took Jesus literally, right? Because they didn't, they never heard the words he was saying before. But you have to remember, Jesus was playing chess, not checkers. He was playing a completely different game. The, the, the rules of the game were so completely different, nobody could really understand what to do. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Changes the metaphor again. He's like, we just said we'd be born again, not born with water and spirit. Humans can produce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to the spiritual life. He's kind of explaining things, right? So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Keep up, Nicodemus. I can imagine Nicodemus is standing in the doorway going, this was a, this was a bad choice to come talk to this dude tonight. And Jesus continues on, leans in. He says, listen, the wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. He's declaring the mystery of the Spirit of God. But he's grounding it in a metaphor that we can kind of understand. He's making so many declarations. He's saying your system's a mess. What you have done before, what you've understood, your, all your expert knowledge in what you think you know, it's all going away. Everything's different now. I'm going to use words you don't even understand because I'm talking about something that you've never even thought of before. You want it to be made new, I'm telling you, you need to be made again. Completely different. New atoms. New atoms. So we see these declarations. God, the son of God, your system is a mess. I've brought you something new. Jesus is saying, you've got to listen to me. John was saying, you've got to listen to me. I'm saying something you haven't heard before. God is saying, this is my son. You've got to listen to me and you've got to listen to him. All these declarations. This is the thing about Jesus. You, you cannot equivocate on who Jesus is. You cannot say, ah, he's a good guy. And you hear me say this all the time. Jesus doesn't really allow us that space. Jesus is either the son of God. He is the lamb of God. He is, he is new life and new light to the world. Or he's an eccentric that's gone too far because his declarations are not reasonable. His declarations are not just like interesting little anecdotes we're going to tell later. His declarations shake the foundations of the universe. And 2,000 years later, we are asked to make those same declarations about Jesus. We are called to be unequivocal about what we think Jesus is. I, I sometimes wish he would give us the space to be like, it was a weird anomaly. We don't know really what happened there. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, this is my father's house. You're welcome to it. But I'm declaring my direct lineage to, to him. So what declarations are you making about Jesus? About God in your life? How are you declaring his sonship, his 
lambship, his willingness to come to this earth, to incarnate, to die and to live for us. Are you still unsure? Are you embarrassed to make that declaration because it's not academic enough or it's not erudite enough or it doesn't give room? I get that. I like to fancy myself an academic. I like to question. I like to... But I'm also a Christian who says, I believe in the living Son of God who has been resurrected. I believe that he lived on this earth and he did miraculous signs and he changed water to wine. As trivial as that sign may be, he did it. I believe that people didn't understand what he was doing all the time and they tried to figure it out. I believe that the language that we have around it is sometimes confusing and so we have to delve deeper and we have to study more and we have to, you know, be benevolent and generous in our orthodoxy so we can understand and, and learn new things. I believe all of that, but I also believe this guy lived and the declarations that he made were not reasonable, but they were true. And even in the face of facts that may seem like they go a different direction, I'm going to hold on to the belief and faith that I have in Jesus. And I want my life to be a declaration of him. I want my life to be a declaration of who Jesus is to me and how he can change the world. So when we read these texts, don't shy away from the declarations that are made by John, by Jesus, by God about Jesus. And think about the declarations that you make every single day as you live your life in abundance because of what God has given you. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, I'm just so grateful that you don't fail. I'm so grateful that you continually, continually push us to be people of, of declaration saying, I believe. I don't always understand. It's a mystery sometimes, but I believe. I don't want to be ignorant of who you are. So I'm not going to make these statements and not do the work behind them to understand and learn and grow. It's why we study scripture. But Lord, I'm just so grateful that you continue to be such an important part of my life. Lord, I ask that my life might be a declaration of who you are. And that as a community, we may constantly declare that you are God and you are good. So thank you for being here. Pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.